Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show Today we're going to be talking to Ollie Perrin, founder of Lunched, which delivers beautifully put together salads, stroganoff, stir fries and more to your office. Zingy, punchy flavours packed into a handy box. Ollie is the man who first got me to understand how incredible broccoli can taste if you really give it some love and attention. We're going to hear how the early days were, in Ollie's words, a bit of a car crash as he was preparing 65 lunches a day in a domestic kitchen, which he shared with his long-suffering flat mate Tom and he was having problems paying the rent. We're going to find out how he survived that car crash and he's now successfully delivered 24,000 lunches. He's so confident that people love his food he's about to launch his subscription service for lunchboxes and see if he can take on Uber Eats and Deliveroo and give them a run for their money. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Ollie from lunch, thank you for sparing the time to join me. Pleasure, Mark. Much appreciated. Now, I normally go to people's venues to do this, right? And I get them to describe uh, where they are and, you know, how long they've been there and stuff. Yeah. But this is a little bit weird because we're in my venue, so I feel like I should do that. Well, so, we, di- we we deliver food, so um, we yeah, come to you. True. And, and in fact, you have delivered my lunch, yep. which is uh, which is impressive. I will try not to make too many exciting munching noises uh, whilst we're eating, although <laughs> I probably will. If you give a really long answer, don't panic <laughs> if I start eating away. Uh, but just to set the scene, so we're in the Urban Refresh down on Boscombe Beach. Uh, it's a beautiful, calm day, actually, isn't it? I can see the ocean out of the window and it is dead, dead calm and I can see the sand. So quite a cool little spot. It's really cool, yeah. It's not, I wouldn't say it's beautiful in terms of the weather, but it's definitely relaxing. It is, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to we're gonna have to definitely drink some more coffee to get buzzing because it feels quite calm looking out the window. Well, you've, you've generously ordered me another um, coffee from downstairs yeah, via the wonderful mobile phone. So um, I'm excited, <laughs> that's I'm excited we, when that's going to be delivered. Everything's got to be delivered. It's a delivery-based podcast <laughs> yeah. today. So everything's got to be delivered. Nothing can be here ready. Um, so although um, our paths have crossed a few times, Ollie, over the years, but I genuinely don't know uh, your background and how you ended up in, uh, in food and drink. And I know you You've mentioned your dad before was in it, but can you just explain <laughs> yeah, yeah. how did you end up in food and drink and what is it you actually do now? Fine. Um, so I grew up in Essex and my dad used to um, work, in, work in food and drink and had food shops. He was one of the directors of a company called Burleys who were pre-Pret-a-Manger in the city. Right. So it was a chain of kind of like upper class, I suppose, sandwich bars. And um, I spent weekends and my summer holidays um, washing up in the kitchen and actually just mainly washing up. But thinking about it, I didn't really, I didn't really do much apart from wash up from the age of, I want to say, it's probably about 11, but I think I exaggerate and tell people it was, uh, 
It was when I was younger, but probably from 11 or 12, I was washing up. You, you went to school as well, or you literally just washed <laughs> up? That was your life. You were no. just, was this like prison? You were kept in a kitchen. Thinking about just it now, my up. God, it's all, this yeah. is, this is turning into amazing so therapy. You, you, yeah. uh, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I went, I went to school. I had, I had a nice, I came from a nice background, I suppose, really. Um, parents worked hard, and yeah, dad worked in food. So you just kind of, it's what you know from an early age. And, I think I always liked eating and um, never, never, never been able to shake off the food industry, really. Um, I always had like jobs in like local hotels, um, bar jobs, clearing tables. Yeah, I, I had a job as well packing food at my mum used to work for something called Nutrisystem years ago. It's like a dieting franchise. So I'd like pack the healthy food for the women actually thinking about that it wasn't it was all in packets but i don't know i don't know how healthy it was but that was that's not that's not a great food story <laughs> let's yeah. hope the food stories yeah. get better well, and, know, and you that's do it do healthy food now so 2014 that's when you started 2013 right? first self-employed bit um yeah i think i'd done i'd done other kind of like micro projects i mean that's a lovely name for it but really so when i worked i worked in a hotel in um in Essex as I was like breakfast chef and then commie chef and I was living chef because you didn't get paid great so I couldn't afford a proper house I lived in the hotel I used to sell beers to all the chefs in there so I'd always do kind of like the smallest version of an entrepreneur yeah, so, so that entrepreneurial earn, spirit yeah to earn kind of extra money and I love the buzz of like oh the more I sell the, you know the more money I had the more spare money I had but the point was, I was at the hotel and I was like, look, I need to do something in food, but I just don't want to be a chef chopping potatoes at the weekend. Because um, I'd done the ski seasons and I'd worked my way around doing, a, you know, some other chefy jobs in some not great cafes and stuff. And it was just like a bit grim, really. Um, so I ended up getting a job for a company in the city called Four Degrees C. I was, um, I was an account manager because they needed food experience and sales experience. And... It was great. Uh, and it was selling fresh produce to contract caterers. And it was cool. It was the first proper job that I had that I was really good at and I loved. And I found it easy. The hours were long. And my job was basically talking to chefs and keeping the business of the contract. So for every every big, you know, bank and um, office in the city they have contract caterers that do the food for if you have two, more than 200 people normally there's an in-house caterer so we were one of three nominated veg suppliers for these contract caterers um, and all you had to do is basically become friends with a chef make sure that they got their stuff every day in terms of the fresh produce and and when they opened a new account for example a Reuters and they opened a, a Reuters in Reading you just make sure that they had everything they needed and that you helped them keep their client. So, for example, if it was supplying to Baxter Story or Compass, their client would be like, their client is Reuters. So you help them keep their client by helping them with all the stuff on the environment and the food miles. And we use leaf accredited produce. So actually, it was kind of a baptism of fire in terms of learning about, I probably learned more about produce doing that job and working with some brilliant chefs. Then I did actually working in some not great 
cafes. I kind of shortcutted to working with some great people and we worked with Heston and the chefs that he trained up via the Baxter Story Academies. And it was fascinating and I could still get to work with chefs and I was on good money and I was like, I love this, this is great. But after three or four years, I was still coming down to Bournemouth because my friend Tom that I'd met at Yeovil College um, had moved to Bournemouth. So I'd come down here at the weekends and just be, you know, do some 80s jet skiing and some 80s walking on the beach. And I thought, this is this is as close to being in California that we're going to get maybe in my lifetime. So I thought, well, if I can sell veg in London, um, well, why can't I sell it down here? Uh, and actually that didn't work out, but the idea was enough to draw me down to Bournemouth and to, and to want to start selling veg down here to companies. In fact, I probably approached you when I first came down. Yeah, I'd forgotten actually until you mentioned it then. I think you're right. I think yeah. you did. Yeah, that's probably how we first met was you I selling vegetables. So. I was very friendly with the guy that started Country Fair called Gavin, who's a, a really nice dude. And he was interested in what I was doing in the city because at Four Degrees, we were one of the first companies to talk about um, food miles and to talk about um, provenance and leaf accredited farming for our clients before that it was just you'd get the farmer in to talk but we were kind of obsessed with getting local produce and at the time we were like we'd use suppliers that were growing mushrooms in tunnels in london um it was just as it started to become quite cool this probably about 12 years ago uh so he was interested in that so i used to talk to him about what i wanted to do and he said look come down and maybe we can do something together um but i'd never started a company before i was just an account manager that had dreams of you know, selling veg to restaurants in Bournemouth and that was bloody hard and I, I had a couple of clients but they were, they were crazy, they were crazy, I didn't want to pay. Um, it was a bit of a horror story really, generally and so I came down with a bit of capital, blew it on, you know, vegetables, <laughs> blew, it, blew <laughs> it on veg, which probably no one has ever said. No, most people coming down to Bournemouth in the, uh, yeah. you know, weren't, weren't necessarily spending it on carrots and going, no. yeah, God, this was wild and crazy. <laughs> yeah. I lost a fortune, yeah, 22. Uh, but I had some good times <laughs> yeah. and I went out on a jet ski. Yeah, yeah. you know, you're right. Uh, yeah, it was, um, no, in my mind, I've got some joke about tw- carrots and 22 carrot, but I'm going to, I'm going to part that joke. Okay. I couldn't make, I couldn't make selling veg work, but the office I rented in, in Ashley Cross was um, a digital agency that, that was fairly new and they, they were called Folk. And I just loved, I loved what they were doing in the digital space with fashion brands. I was just interested in what they were doing. And as I basically couldn't afford to pay my rent in the um, office, they were like, I think they said, how are you going to pay your rent? And Paul Sheehy was like, you know, why don't, why don't you come work for us for one day a week? Um, so I did. Making and lunch or? <laughs> that would have been, that's what I should have done. Yeah. But I was their first account manager. Um, so then spent the next three years commuting from Bournemouth back to London for meetings with fashion brands. But it taught me everything I needed to know um, about social media and building a brand and, you know, brand stories. And it, it, it was great. But after three years, my boss said to me, could you make could you make a healthy lunch? I think we had a client coming down and at the time there was just, you know, the supermarkets and the subways and obviously you guys were around, but probably at that, at that stage too far away. You had an open Jenkins and Sons, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's a nice, nice, nice little move there. Don't worry, don't worry. I recognise that I don't feed everybody uh, in Bournemouth. Where's it's okay. That, where's that water? Yeah. Um, and uh, I made like a healthy lunch, like a like a Leon-style lunch in a box. And they, and they, and they loved it. 
and they tweeted about it and I think two or three other agencies said, looks great, can you can you do it for us? So I was buying and selling veg on the Monday, Tuesday and Thursday and then every Wednesday I was doing something that I called at the time the weekly digital lunch. Um, and I thought, well, I think there's something here because I was getting lots of requests to do food for agencies every week. And then I suddenly had the realisation that when I was selling produce in the city it was to big companies with with big canteens but actually for small and medium businesses there was no one doing any good food and that's that's got to be your, that's your soundbite for the ad right there isn't it <laughs> um there was no one doing really he- like certainly not doing healthy tasty food uh, and delivering it it was pr- it probably wasn't pre-delivery but it was pre-delivery in bournemouth um and i thought i love cooking i I, I could happily do this for a long time and I just had no idea how long it would take me to make it work to, to you know, support a business and support a lifestyle or make it work as a business. So I said to Tom, my flatmate, look, you know, I really want to do this. And he said, you know, give it, give it a go. I was, I was thinking about doing his voice, but all right, I'll do his voice. You know, he'd be like, you know, give it a go, Ollie, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll support you. I mean, he meant that kind of emotionally, but in terms of I still had to pay because we'd, we'd moved from the downstairs flat to a big penthouse because we were earning like all right money. So we were kind of like living a mid-30s, you know, men behaving middle class, low, middle to lower class men behaving quite badly and just having a good life um, living in Ashley Cross. And uh, then I just decided to jack it all in and just try and start making lunch for a living. And I went from pretty good money like to... I mean, not, not quite no as much. much. Yeah. <laughs> to, wait a minute, no money. Uh, so I did a thousand lunches from, from my home kitchen in, in Ashley wow. Cross. I mean, I say my home kitchen, it was a, it was a flat we rented. Um, God, the landlady's listening now. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was excruciating. Yeah. Not that you were making enough that she could put the rent up anyway. So that, that, that early stages of doing it, from, from my understanding, was challenging around you know, kind of like what level of delivery you needed, how to monetize it, all of that. And the change really came when you moved away more into the events space and became a bit better known for that. Is that is that a reasonable summary? Or? It's, a de- it's a reasonable summary. <laughs> I know you're going to put a little bit of detail on that. Ollie, but, uh... <laughs> I'm not really a detail guy. Um, yeah, well, I wanted to, in retrospect, and at the time, I wanted, I wanted to just make a living. I just wanted to be able to pay my rent. That was the number one aim. And I wanted to make food in a box delivered to people's offices that they didn't have to go out for. They didn't have to worry once they'd ordered it. And um, the logistics of of delivering two lunches to one place and, you know, small amounts was just so hard. And in a kitchen with a, any more than... I mean, any more than 10 lunches in a kitchen is kind of chaotic. I was doing... I was doing about 65 lunches a day and it was... It was carnage. It was proper carnage. I mean, you know, and Tom lived through that and I was struggling to pay my rent. It was proper car crash. And um, I I was still kind of enjoying it because it was the early stages of it. So it had that buzz of, oh, you're doing something different. I loved it on the cooking. But the reality was I was behind in my rent. I was behind on some other payments and it was, it was a car crash really. But the buzz I got from the encouragement of people saying, can you do it for our office? And you know, can you feed? You know, can you feed additional people? I thought I'm onto something, so I basically hung on to that idea, even though 
the actual logistics of the business weren't working as a model. So um, yeah, I had to pivot to just do events. Mm. So then I was doing, you know, 30 people or more and then there was better margin and um, I could start to live. But I was still supporting myself with freelancing chef, freelance chef work. And I think it's worth saying that these aren't, you know, these aren't your average boxes of food that's probably doing a little bit of a disservice isn't it because the you know you very quickly got a reputation for really fresh you know really good quality ingredients loads of flavor but as far as my memory from day one it was all kind of vegetarian vegan even all those years ago is that right or is that I know, it's yeah. really funny that people and even like we just got profiled by like NatWest business hub and they were like ollie does vegan healthy food and it from the start it was always vegan and meat what, both options um i did actually after the first year because i was i was going out with um a, a vegan and she was also celiac so there were like about six things she could eat but i basically became vegetarian and i switched the company to just uh vegetarian food and lost 80 percent of my customers yeah why why did you do that because at the time i believed in I believe that you can make enough money from vegetarian food. Right. That is a great question. Yeah. It's what my bank manager said. Because <laughs> the quality of the food is amazing. And I do remember trying, that's probably why I remember it, when, when, when you made that switch. And it was probably the first time that I appreciated, you know, as a, as a meat eater who predominantly was selling, you know, steaks and burgers and, and uh, I don't know, chicken sandwiches and all that kind of stuff. There was no compromise. When I tried some of your food back then, I was like, wow, you know, there's a whole load of flavor going on there. It took me another three or four years to actually make the change myself to my diet. But you were probably, yeah, it was probably the first kind of food that, that, was, that was proper, sort of zingy, punchy, yeah, lots of you. flavors coming out of the boxes, which I think is why, you know, people did want it, even though from your perspective, the actual making it and delivering it and making the business model work was a challenge. The consumers who were having your product, they, they wanted you to do it. They wanted you to carry on. But I think we all appreciated the challenges of, of how you do it. But Yeah, I mean, I, I remember coming to you actually at um, Jenkins and Sons, and I think you just finished building it and you were like, this is really good. And, um, but we were, like I said, it, we had to do meat because 80% of, it's actually, it's more than that. It's 95% of my customers have the meat option. 5% of people are vegan. Uh, that, I think it's changed to 7% over the last 12 months. Um, and I, but the belief was actually, if you do really taste, it has to be tasty first and then, then it can be healthy and you can, you can do both. And I think where lots of vegetarian or vegan places potentially go wrong. And I know this, I've worked in some vegan restaurants. Um, they concentrate so much on the health part of it and the, the ethics of it, they kind of, they can lose their way in terms of the taste. And it, you have to have the taste first and then it has to be healthy. And, you know, I suppose I'm lucky that I can cook and I, I get flavors. Um, but I thought if you can use seasonal stuff as well, um, and it fills people up, they won't, they won't want to go, go anywhere else for lunch. Um, that was, that was the ethos behind why, why I, why I started it. Um, but yeah, just, long long journey yeah. yeah okay now you're you're currently so you've you've you know you've kind of done the meeting you've done the event stuff you had hopefully been able to now get back to the point where you can 
pay your rent and have a have a bit more of a quality life again. But that lure is coming back to go back to your original idea and your original concept and your original model. Yes. Outrageously uh, using the hashtag don't lunch out, which when I read that, I was kind of like, well, I nearly cancelled the podcast. <laughs> I was like, don't lunch out. That's, that's, my, that's my whole way that I make a living. Um, but yeah, so why the, why the change now? Having gone through that kind of period, what's, what's bringing you back? Because I know you're about to, about to relaunch and go back to that subscription model. Yeah. You know, why the change and what's going to be different this time with what you've learned? Well, first of all, I've got, you know, we've done probably about 20, well, Christmas, Chris, we had a really busy Christmas period with events. So I've probably done about 24,000 lunches now. So A, I have a much better understanding of what sells and what people want. Um, I have a better understanding of how a business model works and how this business model works. Um, and I have enough customers that are happy to trial a subscription model and have an employee subsidize um, the food in offices where they want 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 healthy perks for their for their staff. I've I've kind of got a ten day rotating menu that I know people will like and they're going to be happy with. Enough people are going to be happy with it to um, I think pay around a five a lunch. And in the offices where it's subsidised, three quid a lunch, I think, is a pretty good um, offering. Yeah. But what motivates you? Because you know you're a slight sucker for punishment, I suppose, in the fact of having having done it. I suppose learnt a load of stuff. What's that calling that makes you uh, do it again? You know, why what, why the obsession of getting your food into somebody's hands at lunchtime? Because people aren't out there starving at the moment, <laughs> no. aren't they? So what? Yeah. Why do you want to do it? What, what what makes you buzz about this bit? I don't know. There's something about, and it's different when you do an event. It's a different kind of buzz to when you do something that feels original and people are eating something that, that people react to it in such a way that I think it, it might be the healthy food or the fact that they've never had anything that they enjoy and is good for them. I just get a buzz from it and I just want to, I suppose I, I'm a people pleaser uh, uh, essentially. And I don't know. It's the, it might be the challenge of doing something that hasn't been done before maybe. And the fact that I think I can make it work as a business model as well now, just, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of reasons. I, okay. I, I love cooking yeah. and I know that I can change the way people eat and make people happy from that. And you were, you were maybe a little bit early, although I know you're not going to be uh, vegan and vegetarian this time, is it? There are meats available. It's both, yeah, be meaty option and vegan, yeah, yeah. But the base level of your food, whether you chuck the meat, you know, the kind of like the meat is in addition to the kind of core bit of the dish is my understanding, isn't it? Yeah. The main dish is still full of really good kind of plant-based ingredients and lots of flavour, and then you can, you can put meat in it or not put meat in it. Yeah. Um, and I think you're bang on vogue now from a timing perspective, aren't you? Because that shift, you know, you look back to four or five years ago when you were doing that, it was like you say, still very niche. The speed of growth in the last 18 months, I think is phenomenal. So uh, I don't know, do you, do, you, do you observe that? Do you see that change in the environment? And is that a motivator to give it another bash? Yeah, maybe. I, I think I think I thought that, what you just said, I thought that when I first moved down, well, as I suppose I started lunch, what you just said, I, I kind of had, I already thought, even though you're absolutely correct, it hadn't happened yet. And people weren't quite ready for... You'd come down from London, so maybe it had in London, I don't know. Mate, yeah, it. you know, there's, there's, there is a three or four year time delay. Um, and I think you still see that when you go back to London now, you know, I'll get off the train and just 
look down at my clothes and I, I just feel like Austin Powers. Like I'm like, <laughs> what am I wearing compared to everyone else? You feel a bit dated because stuff moves so quickly. Their culture moves quickly. Food moves quickly and tastes are a little bit slower down here, which I think is a benefit for, you know, some restaurants. Um, but I thought the concept would work quickly straight away, but it took people a while to get their head around it. But that was my fault as a, as a business owner. I hadn't, um, I hadn't shown them the concept properly. There's a better way of describing this. What is it? The I hadn't shown them the unique proposition. That's a better way of saying it. Right. So I hadn't, I hadn't said, look, this is how it's going to work. It was more like, here's the offering. What do you think? And there was so much for you know what it's like as a business. You have so much feedback. Why don't you try this? Have you thought of doing this? And I was like, no, no, I just want to do food at lunchtime, delivered in a box, at a price people can afford. And I didn't exactly know I hadn't got my head around the numbers and if you could make it work at scale. Like I said, I think I just wanted to survive and be able to pay my rent at the time. Um, it's become much more fashionable now, especially, you know, vegan food, like with things like veganuary and people are much more conscious about kind of what they eat. So, yeah, I, hopefully, you know, it's um, there's a better shot of doing it now. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the consumer habit seems to be changing now at a greater speed than it has done probably, you know, ever in the last decade i think i think people have more a bit more leisure time now in terms of there's a lot more people working for themselves and i think when you have more time to yourself you start thinking about everything from exercise to I think I, maybe the freedom of information on the internet, you know, there's lots of stuff to listen to about what's good for you, what's not. People, you know, you're not dictated by a couple of channels on telly. telly. You have a thousand channels on the internet. And I think people are looking, you can find information much, much quicker. And I think people are educating themselves much quicker about what's available. And I think one of the things that comes from that is good food, where stuff comes from. Um, and, you know, consumers... They're, they're much more intelligent about how they get stuff and they, you have more choices, you know. You can, and, and we'll talk about it like probably later on in the conversation about the amount of restaurants and the amount of offerings that are out there, especially in the city. Um, and I think that's, you know, come down to Bournemouth as well. You know, you, you can open up a delivery app and see 70 different choices of food. You don't have to go to, you know, the supermarket down the road. So... I think people, yeah, people become more intelligent about choices. And I think food and exercise and diet all plays into that. Mm. I, th I definitely think the access to information has changed hugely from, I think, you know, uh, information used to come top down. So it used to come from the government and, you know, they would, well, they would speak to the, I don't know, the dairy industry and the agriculture industry and the nutritionalists and maybe the doctors and they'd, they'd sit around a table and I presume this is how it worked and get some advice and then they'd come up with something and maybe, I don't know, even if some evidence did come to light and say, you know what, having red meat six times a day, seven days a week might be bad for you. They go, yeah, but imagine the impact on jobs and on farming and all that kind of stuff. So I imagine, and, and rightly so or, or challengingly so, kind of walking that tightrope between trying to keep the national economy and national psyche going, uh, but also trying to educate people around the amount of protein and the amount of carbs and the amount of fat to eat on a daily basis, what they're going to spit, they're teaching nutrition in schools. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in the same way that technology is affecting all of us, that ability now for somebody just to kind of grab a camera or probably even grab a phone and go out there and do a documentary and interview some actual scientists and kind of bypass all of the 
historical data and information. And the, the, the mainstream media, really, as yeah, well. Yeah, and then get that to market. You know, all of a sudden that, that, that documentary might get some traction and end up on Netflix or on Amazon. And, and, you know, it hasn't had to go through the same journey. It's no longer about, you know, it might take six months to get a piece of information from the government to be agreed and then out into a newspaper ad and then filter that down into some people and then they tell people, now it's instantaneous, you know, in yeah. a heartbeat, you can literally spread the word. So I think, and I, you know, I think about this quite a lot, seeing the speed of change with regards to our menus and the type of food we've got mm-hmm. to offer and not just the the vegan thing, but the kind of, you know, the more health conscious, but also all the allergy information. And uh, it's, a, it's a permanent challenge to kind of stay on top of it and stay abreast of it. But it's also quite an exciting time to be in food because I can see my chefs, whereas they would have maybe two years ago and gone, this is just a real pain in the ass. You know, what is all this bollocks? You know, we make these beautiful, buttery, creamy, milky kind of sauces and flavors that we've done for years. Finally, now they're actually getting on board. Maybe it's they're starting to do it themselves and try they, it. They, they were your words, actually. When the second time I met you in Jenkins and Sons, you just finished building it. And after you you had a lunch, you were like, sometimes, you know, the chefs will say, try this, Mark, and you try it. And you'd be like, it's great, but it's got butter and sugar and cream in it. Because cause that's the shortcut in food. That's the shortcut to pleasure mm. in, you know, the way the taste buds work. That is the shortcut. The harder thing to do is to make good stuff slow cook. No, it sounds like I'm drawing back into an effort to uh, for lunch. But you—they—they they were your words when I first met yeah, you. So yeah, yeah, and, yeah, totally and, and right. now it's exciting that we can start to think. And, and I think when we started to just offer vegan food, it was kind of like, I don't know, we might deep fry some cauliflower bayonets or something yeah. like that and stick it with a little bit of a spicy sauce. But you'd, you'd look at it and go, okay, it might be vegan, but actually it's not very good for you. It's fundamentally, it's, you know, it's coming fried in batter. And you were right in what you said earlier is the, the fact you can't just do healthy. It's got to be nice. It's got to be tasty. Got to be but tasty But actually first. you can be clever. And, and, you know, we can make now a beautiful black bean, quinoa, spicy kind of, you know, veggie mm. burger, and it'll be awesome and, mm. and put it with with a really good, fresh kind of pineapple salsa and some avocado, and you'll go, wow, the flavors in there are actually way more than the beef burger. And I wouldn't, you know, probably even a year ago, I would never have believed that was possible. So I think it's very exciting. So I, I hope that, um, yeah, that this time round, you've got a much more kind of receptive audience and just the whole kind of delivery thing. Because I guess your challenge is you have got the likes of Deliveroo and Uber Eats, and there are way more people in that sector now delivering lunches how what's your thoughts on on, on their kind of uh, i don't know rise to dominance well i funnily enough when i i think the sixth or seventh month i started lunch i i had a meeting with one of the reps from deliveroo and she said it's quite interesting what you're doing because i spoke to her about not wanting a shop and actually to have a unit and go straight to the customer and she said what you're doing is called a dark kitchen <laughs> and uh and a dark kitchen, I'd never heard that expression, but what yeah. she meant was basically a kitchen that goes straight to the customer and that was in their long-term plans in terms of creating... So at the moment, they obviously, you know, they'll collect from uh, a well-known retail restaurant and they'll deliver to the customer, but actually what they are doing is building the infrastructure behind the data. So they know you like sushi on a Monday and, you know, burger on a Wednesday. They're building their own white label brands behind that because they have the data and they're going and they're going straight to the customer with their created own brand. So if you notice on the app, they have their own delivery pizza, which is it doesn't sit brilliantly with me, but it's clever because they already have the data. Um, so they're essentially, well, that's a creaky table. They're essentially cutting out the middleman, which is kind of 
my business model of going straight to the customer. Now, I, I started with Uber Eats and Deliveroo probably about 10 months ago for a small amount of time because I just wanted to test it. Um, and I didn't like competing with 70 other people on the app. And actually, I wanted to build my own platform, which is what we ended up doing. Um, because you don't need to charge so much money. And, uh, you know, it's actually not that cheap getting delivery or Uber Eats or don't sue me. So, um, you know, maybe it was like, you know, it's 30 quid to get a couple of dishes and a wagon mamas and it's, it's okay. But I just thought that if you go straight to the customer, you have a unit, you don't have the huge overhead that traditional restaurants have. You can, you can chop a lot off that and give the customer something where they don't feel like they're overpaying. Mm. But how do you compete? So they've got, um, I don't know what their level of investment is, let's say 500 million US dollars in their, in their kind of fairly deep pockets to roll out. So how does, uh, how does Ollie kind of, you know, compete with brand awareness and marketing and oh, having 30 bikes out there all with, uh, you know, fluorescent jackets on and stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, my fear is, and it's not, um, it's not an inevitability because, you know, we have these converse- conversations and hopefully raise people's awareness about, yeah, bypass the platform and go direct to the likes of you. But I worry that they have such an immense amount of power. And actually, from the consumer's perspective, they're kind of like, look, it's really easy. I've just got one app on my phone. I go on there. They've already got my card details. It's just a couple of clicks. How do we make sure that people are happy to kind of bypass that? I, I, I worry about the fact that, you know, you used to want a meal delivered. You know, and, and you might phone your like local pizza place or something like that and go, hey, you know, uh, you send me a pizza, it's me. You know, you send me one every week, it's a tenner, great, <laughs> lovely. Uh, and we got to the point where we pick up our phone and that order goes off via Silicon Valley and 33% of what we're paying, you know, ends up in a, in a big, uh, you know, American or European kind of business with maybe overseas headquarters. And the guy, same guy still making the pizza, same guy, you know, quite often is still delivering it. Deliveroo as an example, have got their own delivery. But yeah, how did we get to the point where we kind of went, oh, that's acceptable. You know, it's acceptable for 33% of my money to end up in some company offshore. Um, but not only what, how did it become acceptable, but, you know, yeah, how are you How are you going to compete, Ollie? Tell me the secret. Right, well, first of all, the answer to that is very, very slowly. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Have you got 500 million US dollars, Ollie? Come no, on, but, <laughs> but I've got time. And I think if you do things properly, eventually you you do get the traction. So first of all, I'd answer that by saying, if you can make something better than something that already exists, you know, like, you know, Jeff Bezos would say, you know, at Amazon, if you can make something 10 times better than the thing that already exists out there, you will get the customers. So, and I thought obviously long and hard about this over the last couple of years, there's a way to get something directly to the customer that is better than something, something that already is already out there and cheaper and, they can trust it more because because these apps you're going via a third part. Your face is changing actually slightly. We <laughs> so I better keep talking. So at the moment, um, you pay a lot of money. Let's just, let, let's just go down that argument of competing against a Deliveroo, an Uber Eats, and, and some of these other apps. Right? The, this is a third party that has got involved in a relationship that should just be between a customer and the people making the food. That's the first, the first thing I'd say. So that third party, they are, and obviously, first of all, it is a genius idea because it's making a lot of money. But the question of, is there a better way to do it? I think there is. 
and it is going directly to them, setting it up in a way that once they subscribe to something like Lunched, all right, for a certain amount of money that they feel comfortable with, well, A, they don't have to worry about ordering lunch again. If, if say they order it three times a week or they have a subscription for five times a week and compare that to someone that orders delivery five times a week, well, you've saved them the time of ordering every day. They're getting something different every day that they're going to be happy with. It's cheaper and they trust where it's coming from in a way that I don't think you trust a bigger brand that has so much scale that they're trying to save money, I think, at the expense of the customer. That's quite... I think that's a great answer. <laughs> you, you may say so yourself. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's good. Yeah, so so I don't have to be. Uh, I don't have to be concerned. I do love that. I, I hope maybe these kind of you know, trailblazers come along and uh, and they demonstrate sometimes you know what we should be doing. Maybe we should already be you know taking food to the consumer rather than bringing the consumer to the food. And we just need to get better and do that well. And then the consumer will come back and bypass the middlemen. I uh, I hope that's the case. And I hope that when when like I say when we have these kind of conversations, people think about it and go actually yeah i don't need to give 33 percent to the deep pocketed venture capitalists who've already got an absolute fortune in money because I'd rather it, it, ollie had it, it well, if you think about it if you think how much realistically most people on an average income have uh, a takeaway right it's not every day and there's and that or i don't think it's many times a week it might be you know a saturday night or you know um a treat during the week the reason they don't have it more or they don't have it delivered to work every day is because of a couple of issues. It's the price and it's potentially variety or they think they can get something better. So if you can make a really good product and make it easy for them and you're saving them the number one thing that everyone wants at the moment, which is their time back, you're bypassing that. That's why Uber works because you're giving people their time back and it might be slightly cheaper than a traditional taxi. Um, now the trust element of, you know, having, you know, something that people know, they know where it comes from, I think also plays into it. So I'm banking on the fact that I can provide something that is similar to what people now know via, you know, a deliver, a delivery or, um, these other guys, but actually it's something that is really healthy there's not that many people that are doing very healthy stuff delivered. I was going to say that. I think that's key. I think for me, if I think about what stops me ordering ordering a takeaway, you know, I probably order, I don't know, you know, once a month maybe. And probably the key thing is uh, is is health. You know, most of the takeaways. So if I think when I'm going to want a takeaway, it might be, you know, kind of Friday, Saturday night, I'm at home with the kids, and maybe it's their influence. But you know, it might be a pizza, it might be a Chinese. But on a personal level, and you, you can do that if you're a little bit savvy with it, with 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 you know maybe a Chinese, but. Um, yeah, you always wonder a little bit with my chefs, which is changing, but you know, they give you a lovely soup and you go, man, that's an <laughs> awesome soup. What's in it? Yeah. And they go, oh yeah, just, you know, like some cream. Just and a some few butter. little and things. You, and you're like, yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the same takeaway. But yeah, if I could, if I could order, you know, what you've just bought me for lunch with 20 minutes notice and have it delivered to my house on a Saturday night at uh, seven o'clock, that would be amazing. I promise not to ring your mobile, Ollie, and go, yeah, or I might actually go, have you got anything left from lunch today once you're, well, uh, once you're up and running? That's great. And, and, but the residential market isn't, isn't my first no, market. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think there's, 
a big market of people, like I said before, small and medium businesses that just aren't being being catered for. It's just huge. Um, and, you know, they, they haven't got much time. They've got a half an hour lunch or an hour, hour at most. Um, and it's just one less thing to worry about. You set up, you know, a subscription um, that we're going to be trialing. You don't have to worry about it, yeah, and and but and you can trust it, and I think that's, that's no, I think it's great, and 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 I'm uh, yeah, I'm optimistic and excited to see it launch. I would use it myself if I didn't happen to spend most of my days sat in, in restaurants. restaurants. Yeah, it might be a little bit awkward if I'm sat there having a meeting with my chefs, and all of a sudden you deliver my lunch, <laughs> I know, and I've, I've bypassed the kitchen, and uh, and they make some some awesome stuff as well. So are you going to continue doing the uh, the event side of the business yeah. and all the stuff that's already running? Yeah, and then are you moving premises? Have you found somewhere yeah, from we the have, kitchen? Um, You're not in in your in your mate's flat anymore no, no. Flat. well yeah that was that's pretty painful but um we we're using a kitchen at the moment in the triangle which is um great but quite small um and just almost finished the deal with uh, a much bigger kind of i suppose industrial unit in paul um i think i told you about last time we met it's big and uh, i can probably do I think we can do 350 lunches a day from there. Amazing. Yeah. How are you, what's your delivery mechanism then? I was chatting with uh, Bad Hand Coffee uh, a couple of weeks ago and they deliver all of their coffee on a kind of like, you know, bike. A, a bike, it's basically great, yeah. a trike, which is really cool. I can't see you doing 350 lunches for that, but are you delivering them no. yourselves or you've got a delivery team yeah, in place? Yeah, there's, um, well, there's there's me and there's, at the moment, there's me and another chef and a guy that helps wash up for, for the bigger events. Um, as As we grow, uh, I probably will look at getting a couple of drivers, but just in, in small vehicles. Right. Um, electric skateboard. Yeah, maybe. I was looking at the <laughs> yeah. new um, Nissan electric van, actually. I used to have a, a Nissan vanette, so I looked at the new Nissan electric van, which I think could be quite quite cool. Nice. But okay. um, yeah, just delivered. But I think there's something really nice about knowing the numbers that you're going to do the following day. Like the idea of being in a restaurant and or a coffee shop and just kind of hoping that you're going to do you know 100 for lunch or you know whatever your whatever your your capacity is knowing that you have you know pre-sales booked for the following day i like that i i you know i like knowing that that's kind of taken care of and actually um if we get additional people at the last minute that's that's fine but that that number that you can rely on is just great for great for the yeah, great, yeah. For, great for the headspace to know that it's coming 100%. Yeah. Um, and then the big change, I guess, as well, then in your in your personal life and business life, you know, when you started this uh, those years ago, you know, you were kind of single, you were living with a mate and now you're, you know, kind of, you've got a child, I think. Yeah, Max so. is 15 months old. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've got a baby. Uh, how, how, is, how are you coping with that kind of that change and that work-life balance? Is that having an impact on what you're willing to do <laughs> and how your day is running or not yet? Yeah, well, the first... The first six months, I mean, was hard. I mean, when Lucy told me she was pregnant, actually, was it was you know it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a shock to the system in a pleasant way. Um, so yeah, your life, my life, massively changed. Um, you just have to stop being so selfish, especially you know Lucy always says that lunch is my baby, and you know it, it always comes first. But you, there's it's hard prioritizing what's important that's going to grow, you know, the business and then provide for the family. Um, just getting that balance is, it's hard mm. because, and do you ever feel overwhelmed by this kind of this, this beast that you're creating and getting that balance? And uh... weirdly, actually, as, as I've got busier and, and it's become slightly easier financially, 
it's not as stressful as the first three years of having no money relentlessly and having, you know, debts that you owe all the time kind of makes things a bit, obviously much easier, a bit easier. That's not to say the first six months of, um, of, uh, of Max was, was easy because it's a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. yeah. Good, good fun though. Gives you, it gives you a point to it all, I suppose as well, doesn't it? So. Yeah. I mean, either way I'd still be doing, you know, I'd still be, still be doing lunch, I think, but, um, it's certainly, yeah, it certainly sharpens your focus. Yeah. So yeah. what what would you be doing then if this, if lunch hadn't come about and you hadn't created this, uh, this exciting kind of brand and project? Uh, yeah. Like you say, you weren't, you know, you weren't kind of classically trained, didn't necessarily want to be a chef. Is, was there a plan B or is there a plan B? There's no plan B. It's lunch. Burn the, burn the, uh, burn yeah. the boats. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd just be working in a restaurant as a chef really, but I think at the time of, at the time when I started working for the veg company, I kind of thought, well, I could either, you know, study to be a chef and really go deep in terms of, you know, like a Heston style and really get into it. I didn't want to do that. Um, but weirdly I have ended up cooking for a living, but I'm hoping that what, what we're doing is going to have a wider effect on lots of people rather than, you know, entertaining 30, 30 covers a night, hopefully doing something that's going to change lots of people. Um, and you know, make make people's lives better at lunchtime. Amazing. God, it just sounds like a, a radio a radio bike, doesn't it? No, 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 it's true. And as you you've become, you know, you're you're well known in the town. You're you're a, a very kind of like you know well respected and likable character because you always kind of go all out to help people and provide this kind of interesting food and this interesting uh, interesting story, I suppose. Um, I actually forgot the question there, Ollie. Well, I was, uh, well, I went off on a slight sound. I was being so nice. to do with the community. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, uh, yeah no, it was, um, yeah, do you ever hear kind of bad advice? So I think, you know, you, you get asked more and more, the more people get to know you. Yeah. And I think where food and drink has become an even more uh, kind of popular yeah. business to get into, do you ever hear any advice that's being given to people who are looking to get into business and you think that's bollocks man you know don't yeah. listen to that you know yeah, listen to this of most, so, a lot so, of it yeah, what do you hear that's wrong and what do you try and tell people that you really believe who want to get into this industry <laughs> well i think i was thinking about this yesterday actually because i just saw something on um, i think it was on linkedin and i think it was it was a company that basically helped people get into business and it was about you know just go for it and just do it and it was I don't know. I think there's kind of a story around entrepreneurs of just, you know, if you don't, if you don't try it, you'll never know. And you give it, give it a shot. And if you've got the passion for it, you can make it happen. And I think the reality is most people aren't cut out to work for themselves because the reality is you need so many skills that you need to be good at to make it happen. And actually just being good at food is one eighth of what you need to be good at. And I think, um, there's a story of, of other people getting other people to maybe take loans they can't afford to pay back or giving it a shot. And it's not the reality of what it's actually like to build something because it's so very hard and it goes on for so long that I don't know. I think, I think you, you could be much better off working for another company and doing really well rather than doing something solo that takes so long to get traction. That's kind of what I think. Yeah. I think it's not cracked up to what, what you know what what it's meant to be for lots of people. Yeah. So what is it 
the people that should and the people that shouldn't because it's quite hard to go and give somebody advice and go you know what you probably shouldn't do it because <laughs> it's probably not going to work out and the yeah. statistics are bad what do you think you know what do you look for when you you know if, if the young kind of younger kids or people get into the industry I, I think you can sometimes tell some people think it's going to be easy or they're tell. doing it for the wrong tell. reason or they're lazy or they're not willing to go that extra mile but have you seen anything where you go okay yeah you've got it i get it yeah i think you'll make it uh, have you ever been able to kind of yeah to recognize what it is that people need um i've seen lots of you know and you probably see it probably times tenfold of what what, what i see i don't know if there's just so much easy money that's available for people to get a loan and give it a crack i haven't seen that many people that i think i think you're really gonna really gonna crack it um and look i haven't really cracked it but i'm kind of getting there and i'm now making a living from it so in some respects it's 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 so hard to, it's so hard to judge I think because every context of when someone starts something and the market they start it in and the product is so very different um, that I don't think anyone really knows that you know if you met a Mark Zuckerberg long ago you'd think well you probably won't make it you seem a bit geeky or you know the guy that started Uber or Delivery who would like I actually met the chap that put some of the first money into Delivery and he said he you know when he met him. He was dressed in a kangaroo outfit and he was handing out flyers outside Euston Station. And at the time, the guy that invested, um, I think he started The Real Greek and Franco Mankers, he said, well, you know, this guy's never going to make it. And he didn't give him the £50,000 that he was looking for. And he missed out, I think, the first first round, I think, of, of delivery. I don't know if you can tell straight away. I I, I don't know for sure if to you can tell. To be fair, I'd, I'd take my hat off to the guy that's dressed as a kangaroo <laughs> bouncing out around outside the station because I think that's what you've got to do. You've kind of got to just push it and, and not just think it's going to come to you or that you can just sit in a room and press a few buttons on Instagram. I do believe, yeah, that it's, it's hard and it's relentless and it's not about quick wins. It is about grafting and turning up every minute of every day and, and, and kind of loving what you do. I'm 14 years in now and still you know, <laughs> crap myself about the fact, you know, it's that point, when have you made it? And I'm like, no, you know, the industry's constantly changing, constantly pivoting. You know, we borrow a load of money, we get into debt, the consumer habits change. It's not like you build it, sit back and go, hey, here we go. And I think that's probably the same for all those other guys with the big, you know, the big deep pockets and the, the, the venture capitalists. About. It's still tough, you know, it's still changing. You look at the casual dining sector in the last 18 months mm. and how many of the big brands have had to close venues um you know i think jamie oliver's place that went from you know making a million to losing 20 million in 24 months and and stuff and you think wow the speed of mm. change that's going on in the sector so yeah you can never rest on your laurel so i think people need to need to recognize that it's relentless but it's a great buzz it's a great excitement it's a great adventure but it's yeah it's not easy i'd love to you know turn the tables a little bit and just ask you know I wanted to ask you some questions before the podcast and you were generous enough to say, Ollie can ask me anything on the podcast. So when, when you started, so like I struggled to get even a bank overdraft. I really struggled because um, I had a bad credit rating. And I think so by from, from your carrots <laughs> to from, sales or? from everything. Okay. And I think buying the jet I, ski. <laughs> dude, there's nothing wrong with a jet ski. <laughs> I think by nature, entrepreneurs are people that take risks, right? Yes. And, and I think I think there's a conversation around the fact that maybe in this country we don't give people. We both. I think there's two things. First of all, I think for some people it's easy money and they shouldn't be borrowing it because they can't afford it. It will take them longer than they think to figure it out to get to get market fit. 
and to get traction. And by the same token, I also think that the money you do need is so much more than you first get in terms of when you listen to, and I listen to, you know, podcasts about VCs in Silicon Valley and, you know, around the world, the money they kind of seem to get out there to trial something is just like, you know, a million pounds before, before they even have like a minimum product to go to market. And I'm like, what? I did like a thousand lunches from my kitchen and then begged, you know, the bank for a three grand overdraft and then got turned down at that point, you know, and there are companies down here or the, you know, there's local government incentives that do help people with money when you need it, but it's so hard to, to get. And I don't know. I think there's a conversation around, look, if we know that one out of 10 businesses fails, right. Then, then more money needs to be assigned to people that might not have a brilliant credit rating or have tried even a few projects before that have failed. Because if that one succeeds, then look at the jobs that you can do or you can give out locally. Look at look at the impact for the smaller community, if it's a small project or if it works, look at it at, at scale. So I don't think there's enough money allocated to new businesses, especially when someone has the right God, I was going to say ingredients, but look, the right ingredients for, for them to, for, yeah, for them to I work. Think it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And you're right. You do see, you know, when you first look at some of the US investments, you think, my God, why, why are they investing in that? And I think you're right. I think they have this relatively relaxed, you know, they'll do, the, they'll do their due diligence and obviously they don't want to throw the money away, but they do recognize that, you know, not every idea is going to work. And actually, you know, failure is celebrated as long as you're learning fast and then you're changing and you're pivoting and you're moving forwards. And that idea may not have worked, but what did you learn from it? Um, it's an interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, we, you know, we don't, at the, at the entry level into any industry, you don't have the luxury of, of having access to that cash and being able to do that. And actually, you know, maybe you are learning fast, but, it, but, but the failure is so catastrophic that you end up going, okay, well, that was my trial at being self-employed yeah. and being an entrepreneur. Back I suppose I'm destined job. to my job in Sainsbury's. Yeah. And shelves. it's not fair. And it's not, it well, doesn't, doesn't feel fair. No, it, it does feel right. Like there should be access to a big pot of cash where you can try stuff. But I suppose, how do you, yeah, how do you know who, who do you let go in the bucket the and try stuff? Exactly. And who's just going to go, thank you very much, I'm going to take that and, uh, you know, and spend it going, going yeah. clubbing at the weekend. But look, that doesn't mean to say that it's, we live in an amazing time when there's, where there's like accelerators, there's, there's obviously money for, you know, early stage, seed, seed round, then early stage, and then, you know, all the other things up until, you know, a proper exit. But just getting getting started and not having to run a normal job to make a living, to make things work as you're building the nuts and bolts of a business model that can work, to juggle everything else just seems, it seems such a high price to pay in terms of what you have to go through to, you know, put a lunch on someone's desk, all right? Like, I'm not trying to get rockets to Mars. Not or, Elon. I'm not Elon. I'm not trying to start, you know, a rocket company, a boring company, and like an electric a car company. Just trying to do a small thing. And it feels so, if you feel so penalised for trying to do it. Yeah, but I think the flip side is, like you say, you know, we could, we could whinge about it. But actually, you know, if, if one good thing came off the back of the recession, it yep. was, for me, it was peer funding. It was that right, ability okay. that you no longer do you have to go to one person for a lot of money. You can go to loads of people for a little bit of money and actually come out with what you need. And have I think you crowdfunded? Have you crowdfunded? No, we've not yet. We've looked into it. And I think one day we will. But I think it's a hugely um, exciting 
concept. You know, I know that we could phone, um, you know, Funding Circle and many others, you know, as an example. So rather than a pure crowdfunding and investing in us specifically, we could go to one of those kind of middle guys and, and they would lend us a hundred grand in, well, probably more in seven days. And it does help to know that they're there. And you've got to have a bit of trading history with, you know, for that kind of access. Um, but it's comforting and, and, and exciting and it does create some opportunities, but you've still got to give a personal guarantee. You know, you've still got to put your house on the line and, it, and you have got to pay it back. And it is, and it is high risk. But I think the other thing that came out of probably the tech revolution is just access to knowledge. So whereas how to run a company used to be something you had to go to, you know, to Harvard or Oxford or whatever to learn, or, or you had to have access to somebody very senior in the yeah. city to actually understand how to run a company, you can teach yourself now, you know, you can actually teach yourself on your phone. And that's not even just a Western thing. You know, you can go to, you know, the kind of the, 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 the back end of India and still get access to a mobile phone where you can get access to the internet and you can learn. So I do think that we are living in an incredibly exciting time for the for the reinvention of the entrepreneur. Probably go back a hundred years when you know we were a nation of shopkeepers and everybody just did it. And we went then went through this cycle where it became about the big brands and stuff like that, which is still happening and still concerns me. But I guess it gets back to the point of the Humans of Hospitality podcast, which is this, you know, as long as we're informed, now it is so easy to start a gin distillery or a microbrewery or a lunch delivery service or, or a restaurant in the fact of getting knowledge and access to market. No longer do you have to save up to put a, a one-page ad in, a, in in the Telegraph for £20,000. You can get on your social media and you can get it out there. So there's pros and cons. This is what I mean about the fact that things just change. It just moves at a pace and at speed and you've just got to be the sort of person that is willing to learn, learn fast, grab hold of stuff, hang on tight, but, but be bloody motivated every single day, even when it's shit. Yeah, I think you're right about the, the access to knowledge that we talked about earlier on as well and we do live it is an amazing time you know the the whole social media thing if your stuff is good people do respond you know and like you said years ago you'd have to save up for like an ad in um a bbc magazine for example <laughs> hypothetically but, yeah but you can put good stuff on twitter or instagram and if it's good organically pe people do respond to it so it's the barrier to entry is lower which is great it's like but everybody's barrier to entry is lower so you're in a market is. which is swamped exactly and so changing fast yeah so it's it's more of an it's an equal opportunity for everyone yeah which is amazing um and then yeah I think yeah. in the restaurant sector, the challenge with that is that you used to be able to have a restaurant, maybe it's been running 10 years, it's got a good reputation, does good food, and you could be reasonably confident that it would carry on doing that for a period of time. And new places would come along, but it might take a couple of years to have an impact, and then you get time to change. The challenge now is somebody can open a restaurant, do a massive push on social media, everybody falls in love with it, they, you know, everybody goes there instantaneously, and the other restaurant just down the road that's been there for a decade you know, is no longer the in place, and it's a real struggle to kind of go through. And you know that it'll change, but the trouble isn't, you know, in, in, in two some another one crops up and it's this continuous, you know, the, the, the consumers love the new thing and they, mm. the Instagram generation love to be able to take the photo, not at the place that was called two weeks ago, mm. but what's the new place? And you've got to be true to yourself and authentic and, and, and keep going. But it, it just makes it more challenging, that speed of change, not just in the in the online world, but it has an impact um, so in the physical world. You have world. an advantage, right? As a, As a small restaurant group, you can be dynamic enough to change your menus and change your offering you can tweak it to make yourself a bit more competitive rather than some of the bigger brands yeah we have the advantage of we can we can 
yeah, change really fast. You know, we can change today's or tomorrow's lunch menu today completely if we want to. What where we don't have the advantage if we've got, we haven't got very deep pockets. So if we mess mm. it up, you know, we can't go. Oh look, you know, we lost a couple of million quid this year. Okay, we'll make some changes and we'll bring them in place and then we'll trade. And you know, we think in three years' time we'll be out of this slump. It's kind of like, like if yeah. we don't have enough money in fourteen days to pay the staff and the suppliers, then in twenty-one days we won't be here anymore. So it's a it, yeah, we we have to move faster. But I think the uh, uh, yeah, the risk and the exposure is higher. You know, loss is a cancer and cash flow is a heart attack. I like that. Do you find that, so you've, you've, been, you've been doing it long enough now where you have a good reputation locally, right? You have, you, have, um, you have like a database with all the customers, right? Or uh, lots of the customers that have subscribed to your newsletter. My question is, and you know, we mentioned it earlier on, we, did, we didn't dig into it. In terms of when you started, was was money difficult to get to get hold of, or was it? It went it went through a phase. It was it was it was really hard. So when I first started, I remember going around with a business plan. This was just to open the uh, the hotel, Urban Beach, and I I, I was. You know, I'd done a BTEC in business studies. I'd worked in London for a while and I na- naively presumed that you'd write a business plan and you'd pop into the bank and you'd say, hey, you know, here's my business plan. It's pretty good. You know, you're, um, I know you're a bank and you're fairly risk averse, but, you know, here's some, here, I've got a deposit and, uh, and I've got a good idea. You're not going to lose your money because you're investing in a property. It's a bed and breakfast. Should be fine. And literally every bank just said no. You don't, wow. But I was kind of walking in at branch level and go, hey, can I speak to somebody about getting a commercial yeah. mortgage? And they're like, have you, have you been in business yourself before? And no, no, I haven't actually. What is that relevant? You know, it's kind of, but you know, here's my business plan. I've, I've written it down. It's, it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely going to work. Literally everybody was a no. And then I learned about commercial brokers. Um, so, so, so a middleman who would bypass branch level and would actually introduce you to somebody senior enough mm. in the bank where no longer was it just, you know, computer says, no, have you been in business before? All of a sudden you've got to sit down in front of a human being and that human being at a commercial level whose job was actually to lend money to people that he believed in, much more old-fashioned banking, yeah. where you would articulate your enthusiasm, show them the business plan, and as long as they bought into you, then they would be happier to do the deal. The middleman ended up getting about four and a half grand for that or something. So, you know, I, I didn't even realise these people existed, and even if I did, I didn't want to pay them. And then when I worked out, okay, you can't actually get to speak to the person you want to unless you do pay them, there's an issue. And then after that, you flip it, and all of a sudden, once you owe, you know, they say if you, if you owe the bank 10 grand, you you've got a problem. But if you owe the bank a million pounds, they've got a problem. Yeah. And it becomes quite true because all of a sudden the bank come to you and they go, hey, you know, Mr. Crib, and you know, just call me Mark, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm in the area, I was going to pop in and see you. And you're like, what? Like you're bringing the branch to me. Huh. Like, oh yeah, let me buy you lunch. <laughs> you're the bank and you're going to buy me <laughs> lunch. Okay, uh, let's go with this. Right. And you learn that. And that, that kind of carried on for a few years um, until we had the financial crash. And when the recession hit and we were still trying to finance new projects at that point. Which was what year? Uh, two thousand and eight I yeah. suppose yeah 2000 end of 2007 2008 whenever the kind of you know the, the financial world fell over the difference in trying to raise money after that was phenomenal you know the amount of questions you'd get asked we had to change banks but still you know as long as there was some equity and and there was a few banks in the market you could change and although we've looked at crowdfunding and stuff before uh, the still the banks have always been off been able to offer us the best rate albeit we've been lucky enough to secure most of the finance on the freehold of the hotel albeit our other venues are 
our, um, our, right. our, our leasehold. So it's um, it's challenging. It's not like there's loads of cash, but you can generally get enough for the next project, particularly if you move banks and say, I will bring all of my debt, fundamentally, mm-hmm. but all of my business and all of my credit card transactions and everything I do to you if you'll just lend me another 250 grand to open this restaurant. So you're bringing enough to the table then that they're, that they're interested. Fine. So you're... So as kind of you can raise it basically as a combination of to a degree your debt and your going concern and and I assume with the the first hotel doing enough revenue that they'll give you another amount another lump sum again to do the same thing. So in terms of the numbers, is that making a huge profit on the on the first one? Because obviously they'd be like, well, can't you generate enough profit to fund another one, or does that not happen? Fundamentally, you know, the bank at a mortgage, commercial mortgage level, which is more my level of experience. We you know we can get an overdraft now, based on our trade, based on our trading history and stuff. So we're cyclical. You know, we make money in the summer, lose money in the winter. Yep. So if I go to the bank now and say, "Hey, I need a hundred grand overdraft to get through the winter," that'll be based on the number. So they'll look at the profit and the loss and the, you know, the last couple of years trading history and 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 just reputation, really. That you know, relationship that we've got with them, where we've maybe used them for a number of years, and and remarkably quickly they'll kind of sign off 100k which is great but if you want to do say something more like you know two 300k to actually invest in a new bar or new restaurant fundamentally banks are still hugely risk averse it's all secured on a loan to value basis in the same way as your home mortgage in the same way you can't buy a house for 100 grand and borrow 120 you know they'll lend Mm. you they'll lend you 75 percent easily Mm -hmm. they might lend you 85 percent if if your personal numbers add up they probably won't go to 95 anymore it's exactly the same it's actually slightly worse in commercial world they'll they'll make maybe go to 70% loan to value. So as far as I can tell, they're not taking any risk whatsoever because fundamentally they've got 30% you know, equity in, in, in our case in the hotel that if it all goes tits up, they just sell the hotel. Even if they sell it for 30% less than it's worth, they get their money back. So I don't think it's as complicated as they think they are. But, but when you then start to go and add additional debt into the business and cross guarantees and supplier guarantees and personal guarantees and all that kind of jazz, it gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And the first three years you you were able to pull a decent wage from from, uh, from no Beach. so my uh my w- wife then fiance uh you know we were living in the hotel so we were living in urban beach yeah and um she was a teacher mm-hmm. i didn't we didn't need much to live on because we were living in the premises so our food and and our light and our heat and our accommodation was all kind of part of where we were living it was it was a pretty crappy kind of little owner's flat in the back of the hotel but we just had very very little outgoings we, we you know i didn't have i had five days off in the first two years anyway so mm-hmm. it's not like we were paying for holidays or nights out yeah. it was just grafting you know i couldn't physically or mentally go back and do it but we we just had very little need for any money yeah. apart from what we were bringing in in the hotel and then we were spending it back so we were spending it on paint and linen and new furniture and just reinvesting every single penny so yeah it was never about borrowing the money to live on the borrowed the money to get the asset and then we sweated that asset you know yeah. i was the chef i was the chambermaid i was the barman i was up at six in the morning you know cooking the food then i was going and being the chambermaid and I'd still be running the bar at two in the morning um, for the contractors that are in there. Yeah, it wasn't, it was never about money. It was about creating something. It yeah. is amazing how many jobs you have to do yourself when you first start and the perception of what other people think you do. Like people probably think I do this all the time, right? Or, yeah. you know, turn up at an event after, you know, we've done a few hundred meals. 
But the reality is the graft of the skill set you have to have to generate sales, to do your accounts, to reconcile accounts, all those things. And, and that's not including having a product that people will pay for above the, the products that exist somewhere else. Yeah. So it's having that competitive edge and doing those other things of juggling all those things to make it work. And like you've done that we haven't, we, you know, we haven't got a huge, huge loan or anything, but at some stage we might get investment to then have an outside party view that as you're capable of looking after that, you know, big sum of money and growing it to something that's that's yeah that's yeah you've really got to be you know like you know uh yeah you got to know a lot know a little bit about a lot rather than a lot about a little bit and i think there's there's people who would who would argue against <laughs> that and just say go deep and know your one thing but i think to be entrepreneurial particularly when you don't have the money the investment to go off and get yourself a finance director and a marketing director it's if not you're, possible marketing yeah. it's not possible yeah. in the early days if you're days. starting that entrepreneurial journey as i would say kind of you know uh bootstrapping it then you've really got to know about brand and about marketing and you've got to learn how to read your numbers and profit and loss accounts and employment law. You don't need to know everything about it, but you've got to know enough to be able to articulate in a conversation mm. so that nobody's kind of bullshitting you or hoodwinking yeah. you or pulling the wool over your eyes. And if you don't get up to speed with that very fast, then yeah, you probably won't get past that sort of 24-month barrier, basically. So. And also in hindsight, if you could have stuck with a bigger lump sum on your own and paid those people you wouldn't have it that way, right? You, you'd want to have gone through the graft of knowing the numbers, knowing all those things that when you're going through it, it's just so painful. But actually, in hindsight, it's like, well, actually, I know how to do that. That's not, you know, all yeah, those things. I, it, I really wouldn't want to do it again. I don't think, like I said, I don't think I could physically and mentally work as hard as I did in those first few years now. I think yeah. I'd just go, you know what? I'm just going to go and get a job. <laughs> I don't think I've got it in me to do it again. But when we create new places now... Oh God, it's exciting to be able to go to your finance person and say, hey, can you just um, crunch these numbers and produce me a report and show me this? But I've got to be able to understand it. When I go out to the guys and go, look, we need to recruit a new brigade <laughs> of chefs yeah. or a new brigade of, um, you know, a new bunch of guys for the bar, knowing the job and knowing what they do mm. is, is, yeah, it's fundamental. But I don't want to go back to the day that, yeah, that I have to do all of that stuff. I kind of apps probably would, you know, if, if we ran out of money. I know what you mean. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, I, I do think... You want to have gone through it, but I think it's way more fun when you come out the other side. And I love now having a team of people, you know, who really believe the same stuff that I believe around hospitality and around the fact that hospitality is about how you make people feel mm. way before it's about making money and, uh, and focus on that, you know, focus on creating environments where, you know, what a privilege it is that people come into our spaces and have their birthdays and anniversaries and graduations and, and wakes and spend time with us and want to do that. That's so exciting and doing that with a team of people who share that passion and excitement is way more fun than kind of just doing it on your own it's a different kind of fun yeah um, but yeah no, no, that feeling good. that and i think i assume that people that do so well in hospitality it has to be that that buzz that you get that connection when you make something that you can see you're kind of like entertaining someone or you're just changing them in a small way it's that has to be the thing that keeps people doing hospitality right because the other stuff is so hard that unless you like that you'd be crazy to do it unless you liked it. Yeah, it's it's such a tough industry, isn't it? Particularly for, you know, the chefs in hot boxes, often hot windowless boxes, really getting their asses kicked. Um, you've got to love 
the fact that what we fundamentally do is the basics of humanity. You know, you cannot have human relationship, which has got to be the point of existence, time mm-hmm. with family, time with friends, time chewing the fat. Even if it, even if the meeting that you're having is about business, you're doing it over a coffee and a croissant or a bit of lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an amazing privilege to kind of aid the continuation of humanity, which I don't think I'd get if I was selling toilet rolls on the internet. You know, I just don't think <laughs> I'd be able to feel it. Well, that's so um, well articulated. I don't think I can top how you said it. <laughs> so, um, so, so I won't, but the feeling of when, you know, I've worked for other people my whole life, apart from lunch, which is basically now full time, but that feeling of creating something yourself, you just you just want to work so hard for it because it means so much. And when you see someone react to it, it is, it is kind of mad. It feels, it does feel magic. Yeah. So you would never want to go back to doing something for someone else. No, no. You just and you're going to see me react to it again in a minute when I carry on eating that lunch that you bought me earlier. Great. We're, uh, we're very close. But um, before we wrap up, um, what's, uh, if you look ahead, you know, five years time, uh, what's the dream scenario for you as to what lunch looks like in five years time? Are there, are you national? Are you local? Are you still cooking? Are you the delivery driver or, or are, you, are you in Mauritius? Um, I think that what, over the next 12 months to, to get the subscriptions working really well in Bournemouth and Dorset, um, and really finiting that, that business model, really making that work. Um, and, and then raising, raising a small amount of investment from there to potentially try it in, in another area. That's, that's the three to five year, year plan. Okay. Amazing. Well, look, you know, good luck. Where can people find out more about you, Ollie, personally? Where can they track you down or lunch? Uh, where do they need to head? Right. Just go to, I mean, put the word lunch with a D at the end of it into Google, um, lunch.co.uk and the website is there. If you're an office and you want to trial the subscription or you just want to learn more about healthy food and just want to have a chat, then, then you'll find me on there and uh, the other normal places, Instagram, Twitter. Perfect. Okay, look, well, uh, you know, keep keep doing what you do. Don't do it too well because I want to sell a few lunches as well. We've got to share. Uh, Ollie, people can still, in my mind, they can still lunch out occasionally as well and then and then don't lunch out with Ollie's food. Um, <laughs> but what you make is genuinely delicious. Thank you. uh, you're a good guy. I really wish you uh, the very best of luck and I hope we can catch up uh, maybe in a year or two's time and, uh, <laughs> and just see what happened and how it went. Thank you so much. All right, cheers, Ollie. See you soon. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.